I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest today is B. Wilson, whose books include The Way We Eat Now and First Bite, How We Learn to Eat. She's written dozens of pieces for the LRB, most recently on palm oil. It's a review of two books, Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World by Jocelyn Zuckerman, and Oil Palm, A Global History by Jonathan Robbins. Hello, B, and thank you very much for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me. Jocelyn Zuckerman's subtitle is How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything. I mean, what is it in? What does she mean by everything? Mm, That's a very good question, because the more I was writing, the more I realised I had to query what the everything was and whether the everything itself actually needed to exist. But if we assume that the everything in our shops is in some way a natural state of affairs, it is fairly staggering that, as Zuckerman points out, palm oil is now in around... I mean, it's just in almost every ultra-processed food product that you can think of, but it's also in pretty much every pharmaceutical product you can think of. I mean, cosmetics, things like everything from soap to shampoo to toothpaste to moisturiser to foamy, squirty um, shaving foam. If you're talking about foods, it's in cookies, it's in cakes, it's in fried snacks, it's in baked snacks, it's in bread. And it's really curious because if you ask most consumers, like, how much palm oil do you consume? If you're talking about Europeans, Americans, people in the industrialized West, most people would say, palm oil? What's that? What does it taste like? What does it smell like? No knowledge of eating it. And yet it's there. The kind of great cliche about it is that it's hidden. And I think that's what the Zuckerman book addresses very directly. I mean, it's the, as you say, the subtitle is how it ended up in pretty much everything. And it is really strange. I mean, there are second part of the story, or maybe you're getting to this, is that there are places in the world, many places in the world, where palm oil is consciously eaten, enjoyed, beloved, very traditional part of cuisine. But the palm oil that's eaten in those places is something completely different. One of the strange things about it is that in its natural state or its less processed state, it has this incredibly strong smell and this strong colour and it's this rich, fragrant, sort of amazing substance that we then process into, as you say, this invisible, colourless, odourless, nutrient-free Gloop. Is it gloopy? I don't know. <laughs> it's but as well, it's, uh, I'm trying to think what the word is. It's, like, it's almost like it's a frame for other things, isn't it? It's used. Yeah. To, it's it's uh, almost it's... like it's pure texture. Because, um, I mean, I became interested in this when I was writing one of my last books, The Way We Eat Now, because I'd always thought that the big increase in modern diets must be sugar and related sweeteners. And I was really surprised then that every set of statistics I found 
on modern diets showed that the biggest rise had been for fats, particularly refined vegetable fats. This just seemed that something that people weren't talking about, but it's that if you think of processed foods, I mean, obviously flavour's really important. That's part of why you eat a savoury snack or sweet ice cream or ice cream-like substance. I mean, Michael Pollan used that phrase, didn't he? Food-like substances. I mean, basically, palm oil is an absolutely key ingredient in food-like substances. So flavor is important, but flavor can largely be generated artificially by brilliant food engineers. Sweetness or saltiness is important. But what really matters, what makes people go back for the second mouthful and the third mouthful, and then suddenly the whole bag is finished, is the mouthfeel. And that's what palm oil can supply because it's got these amazing properties. I mean, it's semi-solid at room temperature. So it has a kind of butteriness in the mouth texturally. It can make things crisp. It can make things flaky. It has a really high smoke point, which is very useful for frying. Um, It has all of these incredible properties that the food industry prizes. And then it's cheap. It's cheaper than other fats by an unimaginable margin. And, I mean, that's partly related to the fact it's incredibly wildly productive compared to other fats. I mean, in terms of land use, you get 10 times as much palm oil out of the same amount of land as you would with, I think, soybean oil or coconut oil. I mean, it partly depends but by a huge margin, cheaper and more productive. And so it combines everything, well, not good, but everything that's our ids like about butter and about sunflower oil all, all in one substance. All in one Presumably substance. that started in pastry, as it were, the cakes that one bakes at home, you, where you'd use butter, that palm oil provides what butter would provide. Exactly. Palm, palm oil provides what, I mean, and, it, and it's kind of funny, I mean, I'm, writing about it in the piece as the ultimate substitute food. It's described in agricultural terms as a flex crop in that, you know, if suddenly there's another need in industrial systems for something else, palm oil seems to be able to just flip and serve that need. So in the 19th century, there was a need for something that could make candles in a way that was either more odourless than beef tallow, which was the main cheap way to make candles. But the problem is it was kind of messy and spluttery and it left a horrible... Well, I've never actually burned a tallow candle, but it was left a pretty horrible smell in the room, which if you kind of imagine just... I do know what beef dripping smells like. I wouldn't probably want a candle to smell like that. Make the whole Um, house smell of old burgers. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe you got attached to that smell, but still... Or you could have beeswax candles, incredibly lovely, but so expensive. Or the midway point was candles made from spermaceti, from sperm whales, which burnt in a very clean, odourless way. So initially, at that point, um, candle manufacturers thought, oh, they they had already developed the technology to make it odourless and um, colourless. That was the crucial thing. But that was developed for candles, not for food. And that processing is called RBD, refined, bleached and deodorized. And already that doesn't sound like something super appetizing, does it? Would you really like to eat something refined, bleached and deodorized? But apparently we would if it's packaged in the right way. Anyway, refined, bleached and deodorized was a very good thing for candles. And so candle manufacturers worked out it was 
could do most of what the sperm whale candles could do, but so much more cheaply. And then the next phase was soap, working out it could do what other oils like olive oil could do so much more cheaply. And then William Lever, who was really the first great, I mean, I'm not using great in a moral sense. He was very much not a great man in that sense. He saw himself as a great man. He was described by one of his contemporaries as the greatest megalomaniac he ever met. I mean, he. the more I read about William Lever in both of these palm oil books, the more I thought it is astonishing that the multinational food corporation Unilever still proudly bears his name because even by the standards of late Victorian Edwardian colonialists and industrialists he was unpleasant he was racist he was out for himself but he was extremely clever in terms of seeing one of the first people to see that palm oil could actually be many things depending on the way that the wind was blowing so he first of all used it to make sunlight soap which was one of the great brands of Victorian Britain. It was had brilliant marketing and packaging. Like up to that point, people would have probably gone to a grocer shop and buy a great slab of soap sliced off a block in the same way that they'd buy great slabs of sugar sliced off a block. Um, and that then later got packaged in different ways. But he figured out that you could make it something much, much more appealing if you could pre-slice it into these oblong blocks and then have these beautiful logos and pictures on it which could just make the sunlight soap seem so much more attractive but also the branding is everywhere the sunlight the thought of sunlight soap then just gets intrinsically linked to the thought of cleanness in the consumer's brain and somehow they can't stop buying more but he became very jealous of these people that he referred to as the butterine manufacturers And there were great competitions over who could source the most palm oil as a commodity from Africa. And he kept feeling that he was getting outbid by the butterine manufacturers. And then he suddenly thought, well, why not just diversify into margarine? And that was really the key move that founded the industrial food system in some ways. And I didn't realise quite how far back it went. And that was when, in the 1890s? Yeah, so he pivoted from I mean he continued to make the soap as well but he pivoted from soap to margarine on the cusp of the first world war I mean the the massive massive growth in palm oil is all post second world war but this was really the key technological and kind of consumption shift happened pre-first world war and it was just like what did people need in the first world war they desperately needed cheap fat and animal fat was becoming too expensive so In 1899, the vast majority of margarine consumed in Britain was based on animal fat. Only a few years later, just 6% of margarine was animal fat. And the reason for that was palm oil. Sometimes if you look at all the things that Unilever now produces, it's kind of in some of a slightly bewildering range of stuff. You think, well, why they make ice cream and then they make all these cosmetic products and what do these things all have in common? And it is the answer to that palm oil. Is palm oil what all these apparently disparate things that are made by Unilever. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it kind of does go back to Sunlight Soap because the, the two things they have, well, not every single product made by Unilever contains palm oil. I mean, that's another part of the story, which is that in the developed world where consumers are increasingly becoming 
aware of palm oil, they're removing it from a lot of products, particularly premium products, because they know that middle class consumers in the US or UK may have seen Greenpeace commercials featuring orangutans publicizing the terrible damage being done to natural habitats and the lives of both animals and humans in places like Sumatra and Indonesia. But in the middle-income countries and developing world, places like Mexico, India, where people may not have been educated about the evils of palm oil, the multinationals are shoving ever more palm oil into products. So yeah, palm oil is a common thread. Yeah, it's, If you look at the whole suite of some of the best known Unilever products, it's in dove soap, on the one hand, and pot noodles, on the other hand, which kind of runs the whole gamut. But what I was going to say is that the other thing that they have in common with Sunlight Soap is it's like it's got palm oil, but the palm oil isn't advertised. And then it's got some brilliant name and packaging. And that all goes back to William Lever. And in terms of the well, how it's grown and how it's harvested, as you already said, that in it comes from a plant that grows has grown in West Africa for thousands, if not millions of years, and has been, as it were, the go-to, the same way that olives in the Mediterranean. It's the, it's the plant that you go to to get your oil. Exactly. So it comes from a form of, as the name suggests, palm tree that's been, the oil from that tree has been consumed both as a food and a medicine in Africa for thousands of years. And the African production of palm oil has remained, did remain almost entirely unchanged across thousands of years. So it's an important distinction to make that when we say all of these things about palm oil being terrible, when we say it's unnutritious, when we say it's produced in these unsustainable ways, none of that applies to palm oil in Africa. Palm oil in Africa, as you've already mentioned, it's deeply coloured, deeply fragrant, A Venetian explorer during the 16th century who first encountered it in Senegal said it had the scent of violets, the flavour of olive oil and the colour of saffron. I mean, who wouldn't want to eat that? It sounds amazing. And if you speak to cooks from Ghana, Brazil, it's also a key thing in Brazil where you travel to Brazil from Africa palm oil, red palm oil, you're right, it's like olive oil in Italy. It's People love the flavour of it. It's produced in these kind of relatively unmechanised ways by people shimming up trees in very dangerous ways. It's it's an inherently dangerous crop to harvest because you've got to cut down these huge bunches of oily fruits, which then land and then get pressed. But it's it's a kind of delicious, traditional, artisanal product that's greatly beloved by millions of people. So there's a kind of split that when we go full on into palm oil is this terrible thing, we need to make a huge distinction, which is there's palm oil and palm oil. And the one is nothing like the other. And it is, there is something kind of extraordinary in the industrialization of palm oil that they could take something that was so strong. Have you ever eaten palm oil? Yeah, and I have, yeah, yeah, mococa de pesce or something like that cooked with it is so, yeah, it's fantastic. It's so red, isn't it? And it's, it, mm-hmm. it adds this kind of deep flavour that you don't get from any fats. Um, so it seemed for hundreds of years, I mean, palm oil mostly arrived in the West as a kind of 
side effect of the slave trade, but it was mostly brought on the ships for the consumption of slaves. It wasn't seen as something that the West would develop a palate for. And it was partly that this delicious artisanal red oil, by the time it reached Britain, it was probably rancid. So like rancid oil of any kind, like rancid butter is disgusting. That's nothing to do with palm oil. It's just rancid fat is not a nice thing. So Westerners didn't develop a taste for it. Now, as you say in the piece that it was used for greasing, presumably that once it got rancid, it was used for greasing railway train axles. Exactly. So, So one of the first industrial uses of palm oil and partly why people in Britain had a massive prejudice against the thought of consuming palm oil is that really poor quality palm oil, the the palm oil that Africans themselves wouldn't want to consume, came in and was combined with a few other substances to make axle grease, which was the great lubricant of the early railways. And people, it was, Robbins in his book describes it as a highly smellable part of the railway experience, you know, and people would see rats feasting on this axle grease by the side of the railways and they'd see a man kind of walking up and down the length of the train and just kind of adding it in it was just it had this strong overwhelming odor so the idea that you'd want to then spread that on your bread in the form of margarine seemed unimaginable but then a few pages later from that robbins then quotes somebody saying the strange thing is that people were then consuming it as margarine and it seemed already in that early kind of Edwardian phase of palm oil consumption the more people consumed of it the less they noticed they were consuming it. And that was true of all sorts of things isn't it I mean the amount of sugar and salt and 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 fat generally that we consume now we don't notice it if sugar's in everything you stop noticing that how sweet everything is. Yeah I think sugar's sugar's an interesting and related case I mean I think there were so many parallels the more I read, I mean, the, the Zuckerman book, which is, has a more kind of muckraking quality in a way, you know, she really, if you're already of a mind that the modern palm oil industry is evil, read the Zuckerman book and it's just so much more evil, so many more layers of evil. I mean, there's a bit that I quote in that book where she just, she quotes a primatologist and sustainability expert describing what happens in local Asian rainforest communities when palm oil arrives and it's just these layers of yeah evil I think evil isn't too strong a word in that the industry arrives in these communities and these communities are made up of people who up till then have eaten quite a rich varied diet they've been able to get fish from the rivers they've been able to get fruit from local trees they've been able to get a range of different things that they can grow themselves Then the company comes in and just raises all of that to the ground. And then they offer them jobs, but they're offering them jobs for almost no money. But then there's nothing left because they can't fish because the water is gone. And what water is left is completely polluted from runoff. And so they're kind of stuck eating ultra processed food or home cooked food, which they're cooking with palm oil because it's the cheapest cooking oil in every country in the world. And it's kind of, sorry, I haven't really answered. I'm now forgetting what the actual question was you asked. Well, no, it was sugar. about the way sugar, that you don't, sugar, you sugar, don't notice it. What yeah. I was going to say was, there was this amazing Sydney Mintz book about sugar, wasn't there? Sweetness and Power, which was about how the sugar trade had these kind of two dimensions where it was fueled by slavery, causing untold human suffering by the on the part of the people producing it. 
But then the people who were largely consuming it were the British working classes who were also suffering. And the sugar was in a way a drug that sort of blinded them to their suffering. The sugar that they were adding to their tea was what was fueling the Industrial Revolution. So it was like the Industrial Revolution was being oiled by sugar on both ends. So that was what I was going to say. I feel that palm oil has that quality too. I mean, the people producing it, the descriptions in both books, but particularly in the Zuckerman book, of what it's like on the ground, these workers whose health is just being destroyed by the huge amounts of pesticides they're being asked to add to the palm oil plants as they're growing, there they aren't proper safety measures in place, they're getting injured, they're underpaid. It's basically modern slavery, they're being hideously exploited. But then what's produced by this system is then getting pumped into India, Mexico, pretty much everywhere in the world, and is then fueling the crisis of diet-related ill health, of diabetes. I mean, Zuckerman interviews these doctors in India saying, you know, we're seeing a health crisis on a scale that we just couldn't have imagined a couple of decades ago when malnutrition was the main problem. And palm oil isn't the only substance generating that, but it's part of it. It's a huge part of it because these ultra-processed products couldn't exist without it. But yeah, sugar, you're right. I think sugar is hidden, but I think palm oil is still more deeply hidden because there's some level at which sugar in its unadorned form, we all know about sugar, don't we? We all know about sugar. We know that sweetness is something lovely. Maybe we buy products that are sugar-free or we're kind of looking at how much sugar we're consuming. But with palm oil, okay, there is a rising tide of people getting eco-awareness and thinking, I want to make sure that I've bought biscuits that are palm oil free. But the vast majority of palm oil being consumed, people don't even know to look for it. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. Also, it's sometimes disguised, isn't it? I mean, I was looking at the ingredients on my shaving foam this morning, having read your piece, and you know, it has palmitic acid or something in it. It doesn't say palm oil, but it, and and some of them are even more hidden than that, aren't they? That it doesn't even have to have. I mean, there are these you talk about the different their glycerides and there are ways of describing its chemical makeup. There which... are many, many different names because it's it can be fractionated and broken down into so many derivatives. So yeah, I had. While I was writing the piece, I kept thinking, this is strange. I don't actually consume much palm oil myself because I love cooking. I cook most things from scratch just because that's what I like doing. So unless I was cooking a Ghanaian dish, but as we've discussed, that kind of palm oil is actually great. Didn't feel I was eating much palm oil. I mean, my children do love Nutella, whose main ingredient is palm oil. But I have found you know, there are non-palm oil chocolate and hazelnut spread alternatives that you can get and I managed to find one that I liked very much so I, I felt that our household overall was a low palm oil consuming household and then I just like you I went into my bathroom cabinet and I thought 
Oh, so the Zuckerman book pointed out anything that starts L-A-U-R, like for I think the derivative there is maybe called lauric acid, anything that starts S-T-E-A-R, obviously anything that starts palm. But yeah, most of the time you wouldn't really think of it being in necessarily toothpaste, shampoo, all of those things. I think I'm consuming huge amounts of palm oil in the forms of, yeah, those kinds of things, cleaning products, um, toothpastes, moisturisers. Yeah, I have unless you're really, really being careful not to consume it. But then also the argument is I think so often with these questions, it gets into a debate, which I don't really like, about quote-unquote ethical consumption. And one of the people that Zuckerman interviews, I think, again, it's in India, points out, you know, ethical consumption is something you can do in the West if you've got education and money. But there are people who are just stuck with this stuff. And that doesn't mean they're not ethical consumers. But also the question is, what do we do about all of these palm oil plantations which have been created now? Do we really want to reverse it completely? Because those bits of rainforest which have already been raised to the ground, it's quite difficult to use it for something else at this point. So part of the solution ought to be something like more sustainable palm oil. But then when you start looking into that, you see that that's another one of these completely empty, actually kind of worse than empty phrases, which has almost always just been used as a form of greenwashing. The vast majority of palm oil for sale in the world is not certified as sustainable. But even within the Venn diagram of palm oil that's described as sustainable, it's dubious just how sustainable it actually is. I mean, you mentioned in the piece that some of the palm oil plantations in Malaysia, for example, weren't made by clearing rainforest because they're on former rubber plantations. But of course, I mean, rubber is another one of these commodities that it was those rubber plantations were made however many decades ago by clearing rainforest and again that was and the rubber tree that was brought to asia by the british empire with seeds that they'd smuggled out of brazil and germinated at kew and it's another one of these global stories of an, an, an imperial commodity that's europeans have taken a tree from somewhere taken it to asia cut down the rainforest to grow it and you know having done that sure i mean as you say the answer probably isn't to you know, ban palm oil outright because then you'd have, well, there'd be millions of people wouldn't have, what work they do have would be gone. And I mean, as it is at the moment, the so-called sustainable palm oil industry isn't sustainable at all, but is a sustainable palm oil industry possible? I mean, Robbins and Zuckerman mentioned various solutions. I mean, one thing which people are getting excited about, this isn't unique to palm oil, this is a solution people are suggesting across the board of like substitutes for everything from chicken to other forms of meat but precision fermentation people have found that there's ways in which you can synthesize a product very very similar to palm oil and the people involved in that have suggested that would be a great solution if you could just remove all of the palm oil from the existing beauty industry um, and replace it with synthesized palm oil you could save the equivalent in carbon of, I've now forgotten, millions of round-the-world flights every year. So that's one thing. The problem with that is, well, potential problem with that is yours kind of, as you say, it's a colonial story. It's a post-colonial story. The precision fermentation concentrates wealth back in the wealthy West. 
doesn't do anything to deal with the issue of smallholders in Asia who've ploughed everything into palm oil. Robbins suggests that of the, if you look at the major palm oil producers in Asia, so something we sort of haven't said, it's sort of, we've sort of almost alluded to it. So what's so interesting in the Robbins book is he points out that palm oil was something that was native to Africa, loved in Africa, and the very fact that the Africans were such keen consumers of palm oil as well as producers of it was part of why it wasn't ever fully successfully um, made into a colonial industry there. Many people, including William Lever, attempted to just take the African industry and profit from it. But it never totally took off. I mean, they succeeded in causing lots of human suffering. This place, Leverville in Congo, which William Lever described as the grandest site in the world. And he was sort of boasting. It was almost, it almost sounds like Letchworth Garden City, the way he's describing it as this kind of utopian community was actually a kind of hell on earth in which there was no investment in the humans working there and no investment in infrastructure and people were it was forced labor but overall it what robbins does a great job of is tracing the history of palm oil in africa and his suggestion is that one of the reasons that the europeans and americans didn't do such a good job of extracting profit from palm oil in africa was because the africans loved it so something like i can't remember if maybe nigeria 60% of palm oil produced there was always consumed within the country and people didn't just love the oil palm for the oil they also loved making palm wine which was a really important product and the colonials would try and prevent africans from doing that because they couldn't see any value in that as a commodity but it was a it was a product that people knew people loved it whereas in order for palm oil to become an industrial product on the vast scale that we see today it had to be transplanted to asia where there was no tradition of people ever consuming it. People didn't know it. And it was in Sumatra, Indonesia, um, Malaysia, um, and now Thailand, that it really, really took off. But of those places, Robbins thinks that Thailand offers potentially the most constructive model, partly because, as you say, um, the a lot of the oil plantations there are based on former rubber plantations. So, okay, that land's a sunk cost that land has already been cleared but also he says that the Thai um, palm oil farmers a much much higher percentage of them are smallholders and it's done in a slightly more sustainable way than in Indonesia where it is really factory farming on a massive massive scale and the power and the money is concentrated in the hands of a very few oligarchs. At the end of the piece you suggest that the the solution isn't to the to the palm oil problem with the environmental destruction and exploitative labour practices isn't to find an alternative because whatever that alternative is will bring its own environmental destruction and exploitative labour practices. In the way, you know, you mentioned talked about the candles being made. Well, so many things that used to be made from whale blubber, and we don't hunt whales on an industrial scale anymore, and that's good for the whales. It's a good but, thing. Yeah, you know, the orangutan, but not so good for the orangutans because. I don't say the hunt for an alternative is wrong. I just say most of the existing alternatives are deeply, deeply problematic in yeah. their own right. Well, like, 
I mean, it's and it's the processing more... that you say. Sorry, I was just going to quote what you said. That it's the ultra processed everything that needs to change, and that's sort of that's clearly true. But when you mentioned earlier about the the privilege of being an ethical consumer, really, I mean that change the ultra processing has to happen on a systemic level, because I could feel quite pleased with myself this morning taking my fresh bread out of the oven that it didn't have any palm oil in it. But I work at home, so I can bake while I edit, and I can afford to run the oven and those sorts of things so I can the idea that sort of bread that you bake yourself is a is a privilege rather than a, a buying a, a cheap loaf of ultra processed palm oil bread exactly and that's it's, so it, back to front it's well it's just it's palm oil is part of I mean I describe it as being part of this interlocking system of late capitalist late capitalist food but it is, isn't even just food as we've seen it's it's food it's cleaning products it's how we live and something has to change there. And I mean, it's in a way stating the problem like that makes it even more depressing because what are the chances of reforming this ultra process system? But it is becoming ever clearer from all sides that whether you approach the problem from all of these issues of sustainability, I mean, it's hair raising the fact that people are saying even looking at the destruction that has already happened in Indonesia of rainforest, millions of hectares do I mean millions of hectares is it um I need to check that out oh yeah no sorry it is it just uh, the number seems too big but that is right in 1970 100,000 hectares were given over to palm oil in Indonesia by 2015 this had increased to 10 million so I couldn't even quite it doesn't compute and yet the current predictions are that by 2050 Conservative projections suggest the demand for palm oil will at least double by 2050. Some estimates say it will quadruple. And that can't happen. That just can't happen. We need that peatland. We need that rainforest. But also people really, as you say, the the non-privileged consumers of the world really need to be able to eat food that actually feeds them, that doesn't generate type 2 diabetes, that doesn't make them sick in all kinds of ways. And there are these people in Brazil, the people who first defined the term ultra-processed, a doctor called Carlos Montero, who are trying to say you know, the, the entire system is wrong. We need to produce a completely different food system. And that is becoming pretty clear, whether you look at the eco data or whether you look at the epidemiology on the links between ultra-processed food and health. It's just... It's pretty hard to feel hopeful at this point that that kind of political change is on the horizon. But that's what needs to happen. I mean, there would be this as amazing a substitute commodity as it is. There wouldn't be this demand for palm oil if it weren't for the fact that we're eating all of this ultra processed everything. Because as you've said, when you mostly cook your food yourself, which is now one of those statements that... I also kind of bristle at saying people saying cooking is a privileged choice because in many, many places in the world, including the UK, not everyone that cooks is privileged by any means. And I think that's a very useful argument that gets co-opted by the ultra-processed food industry. Zuckerman, again, is particularly good on that side of the story. She's great on the lies and the lobbying. The head of the low-cost supermarket Iceland at a certain point went, I can't remember if he went to Indonesia or Malaysia or somewhere else, but anyway, saw firsthand the incredible destructiveness of palm oil and took this really brave decision that even though margins in supermarkets are quite tight and in the low-cost supermarkets even more so he decided to remove 
palm oil from all of his own brand products. And he was then mercilessly attacked on social media by these people who seemed to be kind of small-scale Asian farmers who accused him of being an eco-colonialist. I think it's a great phrase, isn't it? You just think, oh yeah, who'd want to be an eco-colonialist? He sounds really bad. But actually, these people were obviously the palm oil industry. (laughs) So quite often when I see these arguments saying, cooking, that's such a privileged thing. Well, yes, it can be. But also some of those arguments are being made by the manufacturers, manufacturers of fast food. B. Wilson, thank you very much. Thank you very much. You can read B. Wilson's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Deborah Friedel on Roe v. Wade, David Trotter on Sylvia Townsend Warner and Valentine Ackland, and Jacqueline Rose and Sam Frears on EastEnders. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt. <laughs>